Thank you for joining our podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. Stay tuned as together we'll study God's Word. Hey, open your Bibles or your Bible app and let's get to our text for today before Gary comes forward. We're in Luke 10 today. The good old story about the Good Samaritan. Somebody call out in the Pew Bible where it is. Um, it's Luke 10, 25. Somebody have a pew Bible they'd open up and let us know where it is. 1041. Luke 10 is found on page 1041 in your pew Bible, if that helps. And let's get to verse 25. We're going to read 25 to 29 here. Luke 10, verses 25 to 29. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify him, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So we learn from there today. Morning, everybody. Did I get it right? We have our first and second graders in with us. Can we give a shout out to our first and second graders here? It's awesome. Hey, while you're clapping really fast, I want you to put your hands together because I have an announcement to make that is a praise to God. Uh, We have closed the books on our fiscal year. It ended May 31st, and we have experienced the biggest giving year in the history at PCC. So can we thank God for that? Uh, Around here, we call people committed to giving and growing and serving stakeholders. You have a stake in the ministry of PCC. To all our stakeholders who gave, thank you. Uh, I, right now, as we're meeting, three mission teams are literally two in Malawi, one in Spain, providing hope. And that's what we're in the business of, hope that Jesus offers, providing that hope uh, around the world to people in our face-to-face series that people usually turn their faces from. The poorest of the poor, little kids and refugees. Now this week, another team will be deployed to France, uh, to a city that, again, are you going to France? Awesome. Uh, Teenagers to give hope to more refugees coming into the city in France. But I want to draw your attention to what I call the Holy Spirit cam. Look at this, everybody. This is where hope is going throughout our city, the epicenter of our ministry. Uh, because of you and because of your stake, those of you who are stakeholders, you're giving, hope is happening on Sundays. We have literally blown up our two gatherings and gone down to smaller gatherings so that in a high-tech community, we can be high-touch. It's intentional. So that when you gather and you're face-to-face with God and face-to-face with each other, something supernatural happens. Uh, in the homes in our community, the Holy Spirit is on the move. And if you could hear the walls of just Brian's office talking, uh, doing his counseling, hope is coming into homes where hope doesn't exist. Through our Stevens ministry, hope is coming to men and women and children. Uh, marriages are being strengthened. Single parents are, know, are knowing I'm not in it alone. 
kids are growing in their confidence. Uh, parenting is being empowered through our amazing children's and student ministries. In our schools, which is really tough and going through so much transition, this year PCC was right in the middle of it, providing hope because of you. So when I thank you for your giving, I'm not saying thanks for meeting a budget. Uh, I'm thanking you for giving hope where hope doesn't exist. Amen? Let's, let's just pray. God, thank you for giving us hope. Thank you. It's so good. We take it for granted. May we continue to be hope givers this year like never before. Uh, grow the number of our stakeholders, Lord, so that we can uh, just let this ripple effect of hope grow and grow more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. All right. Bible's open. Luke chapter 10. Message notes out. Uh, this series, what we're hoping for is that as we come face to face with normal everyday encounters Jesus had with people, um, that what you could see is not only what they saw in encountering Jesus, but really our intent in this series is to get so intimate in our eavesdropping that the, the camera would turn like, uh, the image I have is like uh, football, Sunday, NFL, Fox Sports, and the replay cam, and the image turning, and you see Jesus' face, and what Jesus saw is he encountered people. That's the need of the hour, that we see what Jesus saw, because I believe when we, see, when we see what Jesus saw, we'll do what Jesus did, and that's the hope in this series. We're praying for that, and so I want to eavesdrop on this first encounter, and in doing so, I know I'm stepping into a very difficult, but it's such an important conversation, the idea of race and racism. I want to start by acknowledging that I have a very limited perspective, but it's with a pure heart that I'm going to do my best to talk about a very important conversation and topic, because as followers of Jesus in a city that we love, we've got to lead the way and be radically other in this conversation. And I believe you want that too. And so with open hearts, let's look at the word of God. And let me bring you first into a conversation I had two years ago. I think I've told you this, but every Wednesday, I set aside my lunch to meet with a local pastor and give priority to that meeting. To uh, I've been here long enough where I wanna help pastor pastors. And a new church was moving into our neighborhood just a mile away. It was a regional church moving from San Jose here. A great church. I was there on their opening Sunday welcoming them called New Beginnings Christian Church. Their pastor is Dr. Herman Hamilton. And uh, as we were meeting for lunch for the first time, never met Herman, knew a lot about him, heard of him. Uh, this is what pastors do over our sandwiches. I said, tell me how you were called to ministry, Herman. And he just got so excited. He goes, this is an amazing story. Herman and I are about the same age, and Herman grew up in the South. I grew up here in the West Coast, and he said, I was a senior at Grambling State University, and he said, I was going to be a lawyer. I felt like that's what God called me to do, and I was really good at it, but then in my senior year, I felt the call of God to preach, and he said, you know, I couldn't get away from it, so I took a week, and I fasted, and I prayed, and I asked the Lord, if this is from you, you've got to tell me because I will do it, but I've got to know it's from you. He said, I came up to Christmas vacation, and I was getting ready to go visit my dad in Louisiana, rural Louisiana, for Christmas, and it would be about a four-hour drive. He said, I dressed up and got in the car to drive. Now, again, we're peers, right? And I said, you dressed up? And he just chuckled. He said, Gary, every black man knows in the South, when you go on a road trip, you have to dress up to be legit. 
He said, I was coming into this rural town, and he used this term. It was a sundown town. Have you heard that term? Uh, There was a point in our country's history where it was actually illegal to be a person of color after dark in certain towns in the South. And uh, while those laws had been repealed, the culture remained. He said, it was a sundown town, and I went to get gas. And I didn't want to stop, but I knew I needed gas, and so I had to stop. And I got out of my car, and I went in and paid for the gas. He said, I was coming out, a van of white guys pulled up and got out of the car. And as we crossed each other, I was walking to my car. He said, I could hear hear them pivot and follow me to my car. As Herman is telling this story, this internal dialogue bubble is going on in my mind. His experience as a black man, my peer, was so foreign than my experience as a white guy. I had road tripped three times cross-country from Sacramento literally to Boston uh, while I was in college. I'd driven through the South. Never once did I ever think about what I'm going to wear when I get in the car to drive. Never once was I ever concerned about getting gas at night in any town, let alone the ones in the South. Once again, I ached at the reality of what sociologists call my white privilege. I didn't feel guilty for it. I mean, I I didn't determine where I'd be born or the genes I'd have and the family I grew up in, but I ached with the reality of it. I actually think Jesus walked the earth with that ache. It wouldn't be a white privilege ache because he wasn't white. It would be the holy privilege ache. He walked coming from heaven, coming into earth, seeing the pain of the earth. I've got to believe at his core was an ache. And the ache I felt that day at lunch with my brother Herman was a God-impressed ache in me. My brothers and sisters, if we're going to love our city well, and that's the call on all of us as followers of Christ, and if you're not a follower of Christ, you would do well to apply this message. I don't mean to put that on you, but this is so important. 56% of our city are non-white. 56% are non-white. We best see what Jesus saw when he came face to face with others. It's essential to neighboring well. And that leads us right into this story. There's an interesting encounter Jesus has with an expert of the law. The guy comes up and asks the question of questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus does what he often does. He answers the question with a question. He says, what's written in the law? You're a lawyer. You know the the Jewish law well. The man responds, oh, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus says, do this and you will live. I hope you didn't read past that too quickly because that's the offer on the table. Life, life. We live in a culture that thinks life is found in cultural idols that overpromise and underdeliver and actually destroy instead of give life. Jesus says, if you, want to lie, if you want to live, if you really want life, love God and love your neighbor. You've nailed it, Jesus says. Now go live it. Then the guy asks a pointed, specific, clarifying question. And we're going to read it together. Look on the screen, verse 29. Let's read this together. But he wanted, to, sorry, I used the word together. Okay, here we go. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? 
In other words, he does what you and I do. I do this. I'm all in for loving my neighbor. As long as I get to define who that neighbor will be. Don't look at me weird because you do it too. We all have a line that we draw. In other words, Jesus, do I really have to love and listen to people who maybe not be as educated as me? Do I have to love people who voted differently than me in 2016? Do I have to love people who are generationally other than me, religiously other than me, skin tone-wise other than me, socioeconomically other than me? I'm all into loving my neighbor as long as I define who the neighbor will be. Jesus won't let you be bound by your definitions, my friends, because that's not the path to life. Jesus always wants you to have life. Me too. And what's interesting, he doesn't shame this guy. He just brings him into a story. Verse 30, a Jewish man was going, and we all know this story, many of us do, was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, a notoriously dangerous road. There were plenty of other roads there. This one was known for its danger. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. Now think about that. I don't know if anyone's ever publicly stripped you. They beat him and went away thinking he was dead. And the good news is two religious guys come by. These are the good people, right? The professional moralists, if you will. And what do they do? They pass by, verse 31 to 32, on the other side. Then Jesus says three words, and with these three words, it would have been a jaw-dropping, shocking moment. Jesus taught 60-ish percent of his teaching was in parables, this form of teaching, and they all had a jaw-dropping moment. Go on a treasure hunt and read it for yourself. Here's the jaw-dropping moment. Let's read it together. Are we ready? But a Samaritan. What? At that point, the crowd would have gone, what? This Jewish lawyer would have gone, what? Because Jesus, with that one word, brought them into a 700-year hate fest. 700 years prior, the Jews were in exile and were going through northern Africa in exile, and some Jews were left behind and intermarried with North Africans. In that intermarried, a mixed race occurred, and they had a worship of pagan gods. And why so many of us know of Samaritans as the ones who had a different religion, they were also different ethnically. And this ethnic tension was alive and well in Jesus' day. It's still alive and well today in Israel. This hate fest. And our big idea today, if you can look on page one, is this. When it comes to race, and I believe everyone would agree with this, I'm just declaring it. Racism isn't a skin issue. It is a sin issue. We have to call it what it is, my friends. It is not right before God, and it is not right with us as a community. Where do I get that? I hope you ask every time when I'm preaching, where is that written? In James chapter 2, verse 9, look what it says. James was Jesus' brother. He wasn't very creative, wrote a book of the Bible, and called it James, okay, after himself. He said, if you favor some people over others, what are we doing, church? You're committing a sin, You're committing a sin. That's the big idea. Racism isn't a skin issue. It's a sin issue. So our big question is this. 
as Jesus followers, after coming face to face with Jesus, and by the way, that's what we want for you every Sunday. That's why I don't know if Brian has said it yet. We want you here on time because we're trying to usher people into the presence of God. We have an amazing, gifted team of lead worshipers. Don't get here at 1110. We want you to be here at 1058, ready to go in the presence of God. And we get face to face with Jesus and his word. When we come to that most important part of the gathering, when we break and go be the church, after coming face to face with Jesus, how will we face others? What will be the convictions that run through our blood as followers of Christ? If it's not going to be racism, here's the alternative. You ready? Gracism. Gracism. The title of a book we're taking everyone through this summer. Gracism, everyone that wants to participate. Look how it's defined. The positive extension of favor on other humans. Favor based on color, class, or culture. My friends, if you are a follower of Christ and identify as such, is that not what Jesus has done for us? I don't follow Christ today and have a relationship with the living God and live with eternal hope. I'm not a pastor today because I was so good. Jesus had favor on me in spite of me. What I want to do in the remaining time I have with you is bring you on my journey towards being a gracist. I want to be very vulnerable with you and share with you why this burns in me and why I actually believe this is a do or die time at PCC that if we don't get this right, we will just be a good church and not a God-honoring church. So turn to page two and let's look at the journey on gracism in our remaining time. Step one is more difficult than it sounds. Uh, and here's what it is. Your journey towards gracism starts here. You have to recognize your prejudices. Recognize our prejudices. What is prejudice? It is pre judging. I put the definition right there. It's a preconceived opinion that's not based on reason or actual experience. Prejudice. And we all have some. And as followers of Christ, we can live authentic because of the cross and lay before God and ask the Holy Spirit, search me, Psalm 139, 15 to 16. Know my anxious heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I bet if most of us had the courage to be really honest, we would admit to a person we were raised with some degree of prejudice. You know, as I think of that and, and on my journey towards being a gracious, I remember dinner conversations as a seven or eight-year-old in the white suburb called Novato, California, 30,000 people, just 50 miles north of here, where my dad made comments that I just as a little kid took as truth. I remember family get-togethers in the city at my grandma's and my uncle was an was a Irish cop in San Francisco, think he had some preconceived notions about people. And he would make comments at the table. And I, I just remember as a little kid going, oh, oh, okay. I remember being in a swimming pool with my peers as a teenager and they would make comments about girls, about others. And I would just go, oh, I was so naive. I'm like, oh, oh, I guess that's how you talk about girls. And prejudice began to grow in my heart. Maybe you grew up thinking street people are lazy, people who are on the street with cardboard signs. Younger generation, so entitled. Old people are so slow. 
White men can't jump. Your last one's correct for most of us. But maybe you grew up thinking that. You know what helped me get over my prejudice? Coming face to face with people. My first boss out of, um, out of college ministry was a division one linebacker in football. And um, he was an African-American guy, huge guy. His name was Mike, amazing man, still is an amazing man. And uh, I remember I took him home and took him to a gathering of friends to watch an event. And it didn't dawn on me, but uh, it dawned on me while we were at the event, he was the only black guy in the room. And we were driving away, and we had a great relationship. He was mentoring me, and I said, Mike, can I ask you a question? He said, I said, what's it like to be the only person of color in a room with white people? He said, oh, Gary, he goes, I I just know the drill. I walk in the room, I read the room, and I can tell who's uncomfortable with me. And I avoid those people. There was just silence. Because again, the white privilege thing. And I said, Mike, I've never had to read a room like that. He said, and I bet you've never been followed by a store manager in a grocery store, have you? I bet you never walked down the street. And he wasn't saying this by me, and he was just bringing me into his world. He said, I bet you never walked down the street and saw a family purposely stop and cross the street so they wouldn't cross you. Oh, my friends, I want to invite you to be honest and reflect. Do I have prejudice? Look what it says in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 12 to 13. It says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. You know what the Greek word for Gentile is? This this Bible wasn't written in English. This was written in Greek. You know what the Greek word for Gentile is? Ethnos. It's a word we get ethnicity from. There's no difference in God's eyes. The same Lord is the Lord of who, church? And richly blesses who? God loves our city. God wants to bless our city. And theologians would say, generally, he has blessed our city. My goodness, if we're not blessed here, holy cow, right? But how does he want to bless people in a gospel way? Through his church. My first trip to the Congo was 10 years ago, and I remember being taken on a tour. Sharon, I think you were on this, and Bob were on this tour, through Mobutu's palace. Mobutu was the evil dictator at the time of the DRC, and he had two wives, actually, and so he had two huge palaces that had been gutted by rebels, and he had been exiled from the country. Uh, But you could still see the grandeur of these palaces. When Mobutu left the Congo, it was one of the poorest, like top three poorest countries in the world, He exiled as the fifth richest man in the world. What he had done with all his allegiances politically and all the resources that nations gave for the Congo was hoard them for himself. I remember walking just going, the evil of it all. And this verse came to my mind. And the Holy Spirit rebuked me and said, I want you to sit for a moment on how you're stewarding the gospel and all the grace I've given you. I have poured out blessing on your life spiritually to bless others. In some ways, Gary, you're no different than Mobutu. You're hoarding the gospel for yourself. 
My dear brothers and sisters, God loves Redwood City. God wants to bless Redwood City. God has resourced us with amazing ability, just in our human resource, to bless our city. But the question is, will we be conduits of God's blessing, you ready, or just consumers of it? Confess your prejudices. Then the next step is get behind their eyes. We all have such limited perspectives, limited perspectives. The human vision is so limiting. And this is actually what changed the Samaritan from the other two people walking down that road and engaged. I tell my daughters all the time, everybody has a backstory. Uh, just last night, we were in a conversation about marriage uh, with our 21-year-old. And I said, Elizabeth, um, it's not just enough that they have Jesus in their heart because whoever you marry is going to have grandpa in their bones. And it's the grandpa in the bones that usually causes the conflict in a marriage. And when you can understand someone's backstory, it doesn't excuse behavior, but it helps explain it. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came to where the man was. Now here's the gospel, my friends, and here's how to move from, a, uh, from prejudice to gracism. He saw him. He saw him. He looked into him. He, I hate this word, took pity, because Rebid City doesn't need our pity. The word originally is had compassion on him. Um, it's such an important word, I just want to take a minute um, it means to be so stirred emotionally, you have to act. You biblically can't have compassion. It's not compassion if you don't do something with it. That's just mercy. Okay? Revisity does not need our, our mercy. They need men and women of compassion. And you're doing it. I just told you story after story. I'm asking that we accelerate the compassion quotient. You know, this word compassion, uh, it's translated took pity. Um, is used more of Jesus than anyone else in the Gospels. Are you tracking with me? More of Jesus. And whenever it was used of Jesus, someone's life was changed. Uh, a leper got healed in Mark chapter 1. A woman's bleeding stopped because Jesus had compassion. Someone was raised from the dead because Jesus had compassion. Whenever he internalizes straight, someone's life was changed. I just think in my life, we are moving so quick, we lose this trait. We, we numb our feelings and the emotion that's going on. He saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him. He went to him and walked towards him. That's so important. Jojo and I uh, were getting Slurpees yesterday. It was Slurpee day. And uh, one time we were getting Slurpees and uh, we were pulling up to 7-Eleven and Jojo asked, um, hey, daddy, where's our friend? I said, our friend, she goes, yeah, where's Hank? She named him. I said, Hank, and then it dawned on me. The time before when we got Slurpees, there was a street person sitting outside of 7-Eleven. And Jojo and I stopped, and it was a teaching moment. And I just said, and I don't get Father of the Year award for this, okay? I'm just sharing the story. Like I said, Jojo, look at that man. What do you think is true of him? And Jojo said, well, he probably didn't have a home because you could see all his stuff there. He might smell. I'm like, I bet he's got a name. I wonder if he's hungry. 
And so we went up to him before we went to 7-Eleven, and he had a name. His name was Hank. Hank liked tuna fish sandwiches. And so Jojo and I spent time with him, went into 7-Eleven, got her Slurpee, cherry, Coke, uh, cherry and Coke combined, I get it right, and came out with Hank, for Hank, with a tuna fish sandwich and a Slurpee. Not a big deal. But a month later, as we're pulling up to 7-Eleven, my daughter says, where's our friend? It wasn't a street person, he was humanized. Where's Hank? He had a name. See, my friends, when you get behind the eyes of someone and learn their backstory, labels drop to the ground. People are humanized as image bearers. Our theme verse for the summer is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. It says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Do you see it there on page two? We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ that way, we do no other. What's the, what's the alternative to a worldly point of view? A kingdom point of view. Seeing people as God does. My journey toward, from prejudice to gracism began by recognizing my prejudice It was fueled by getting behind the eyes of people and hearing their story. And then it went fully deep in loving people who are different than me. Let me ask you a question. Do you love your neighbors? Do you love this city? How does it express itself? How do you express love to your coworkers? We learn in this parable how Jesus defined love. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey. That means he walked. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out, I'll translate it for you, two days wages. Do that math in your own mind. Enough to pay for a room and board for 24 days for this guy and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. I don't know what love looks like to you, but I know this. If it doesn't cost you, it's not love. Take that one to the bank. If it doesn't cost you, it's not love. If we're going to love our city, it's going to cost. It does cost. Uh, You know, the reason we have first and second and third graders in here is because to love them well in their own community, it's going to cost some people giving up time worshiping once a week to go serve second graders in their community. We just don't have enough. It's gonna cost a tuna fish sandwich sometimes. It's gonna cost us coming to you time and time again saying there's a world of need. Can God raise the church up to meet that need? Because love always costs. In fact, this is super important. Uh, Racism isn't just the presence of hatred, it's the absence of love, my friends. This is what the two men who passed by on the other side didn't do. This is exactly what the Samaritan did. It's not just, I hate you. It's the absence of showing, I care for you. I'll go a step further. It's not just the presence of hatred. It's the absence of high eye contact. It's the absence of touch. It's the absence of saying thank you. Racism at times can be the absence of learning someone's name. Racism can be the absence of prayer. Which brings me back to my story with lunch with Herman. Remember he was wrestling with his call? 
Am I called, Lord? Just let me know. He tells me in real time, those guys turned around. I could feel them coming towards me, and I puffed up like a peacock. And I turned around abruptly. I'm like, what do you want? And a white guy spoke to me. He said, hey, I don't mean to alarm you, and I'm so sorry if we scared you. He said, we're followers of Christ on a mission trip in Louisiana. As we were coming into the building and you were leaving it, I had a strong impression from the Lord, a word that I have to give you. I have no idea what it means. But I grabbed my buddy so we could pray for you. He says, what's the word? The Lord impressed on me, whatever you're wrestling with, you're called. You're called. Herman cried then. He was crying over lunch. And he said, that settled it. I've been preaching the gospel for 30 years since because God used a team of white guys in a sundown town to break through a racial barrier and give me a message from the Lord. I would say they weren't racist, they were gracists for Herman. And the ripple effect of their gracism is literally ministering to thousands of people who meet on a synagogue just a mile away. We got to close this and look at this last two verses. The New Gary Version. You know I'm translating the Bible? Did you know that? I'm not, but I will put it into this. Jesus finished the parable saying, which of these three do you think was a gracious to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law who still is holding to his racist ideology, who can't even say the word Samaritan, says the one who had mercy on him. Jesus in his gracious way says to him, go and do likewise. And my friends, that's our commission. To go and do likewise. To extend grace and truth and love to everybody God puts us in touch with. The gospel is that Jesus came into the world came onto our road. He owed us nothing. We owed him everything. We rejected him our whole lives. And when Jesus saw us, he knew that to stop by the road for you and me wouldn't just risk his life. It would cost him his life. And he gave it anyway. I don't know what go and do likewise is for you, but I am praying this summer we will grow as gracists like never before. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. And Lord, if ever there was not a one and done message, this is it. We are just beginning on this journey as we come face to face with people. Lord, let us not be hearers of the word, but doers. And as you impressed that missionary team in Louisiana, impress us, Lord, with how to love our city well, how to break through barriers, whether they be age, gender, socioeconomic, uh, ethnic, whatever it is, help us to break through barriers, to be gracious. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Thank you for tuning in to our message podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. We would love the opportunity to connect with you more. 
We are located in Redwood City, California, and you can find us online at wearepcc.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by simply searching for We Are PCC.